so um, these two verses that we shared is I'm, I'm tying the verses that I started two weeks ago and last week, and I couldn't finish because of time. And I wanted to kind of, you know, put a nice bow at the end of it, present it before Pastor Ujim preaches next week. But as I was thinking about and studying these verses again, I realized they're not disconnected. In fact, they're connected, right? And I'll show you how they're connected. The theme of last week's sermon is that Christians are called to receive the gospel, welcome the gospel as truth. And what makes us a Christian is if we stand on the gospel, which means we interpret, which means our worldview, our daily worldview must be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What makes me very sad, what breaks my heart, is that people who self-identify themselves as Christians are not standing on the gospel. They think the gospel is, you know, a, 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 you know, a doctrine that they need to agree to in order to secure entry to the Christian faith. But after they initially agreed to believe in it, they no longer stand on it. They're enamored with the idea that, I don't know, God gives you certain feelings, or they're enamored with the idea that God provides for you. They're, we're enamored with the idea of somehow God loves you, and we don't really know what this love means, but we think God loves us. We stand in all sorts of different types of truth and experiences, but not many people who self-identify themselves as Christians stand firm on the gospel. They don't necessarily define themselves on the gospel. They define themselves in terms of their spiritual practice. They define themselves in terms of spiritual experiences, but they don't stand firm on the gospel. And Paul is saying, if you are not standing firm in the gospel, if your worldview is not shaped by the gospel, then your faith is in vain, which means your faith is useless. It's very harsh words that Paul is using, but still true. Regardless of how you identify your faith, if it's not standing on the foundation of the gospel, if your worldview is not shaped by the gospel, Paul says your faith is in vain. Then the question is, what are some of the reasons why people are not standing firm on the gospel? I think one of the main reasons people are not standing on the gospel is that I, think, I don't think many people are aware, exactly, are aware exactly what God has saved them from. I think our idea of sin is, I don't know, smoking or drinking. You know the three secret sins, having sex, smoking, or drinking? We think sin is a behavioral thing. And as long as we kind of stay away from the behavioral things, then we're not sinning. We have a very elementary understanding of sin. And because we don't really know what sin really looks like, what brokenness really looks like, we don't exactly know why we need to be saved. If I don't smoke and if I don't drink and if I don't do drugs and if I don't sleep around, we think we don't need to be saved, right? Kyo agrees with me. That means it's true, right? But being in sin, it's more than behavioral issues. It is the, how we live our lives, what we're led by in our daily life. And what, and, and the episode that we find Joseph in today with Mrs. Potiphar and Mr. Potiphar shows what sin looks like. Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar are case studies of what sin-led people look like. So it is through these two people, by the grace of God, hopefully, God will illuminate what sin really looks like. Okay? So that's the outline in a nutshell. In Genesis, by the end of Genesis 39, 
we find Joseph in jail, right? But if you actually study, so Joseph is in jail, and Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar are free. But if you study it more carefully, I realize is the inverse is true. Even though Joseph is in jail and confined to prison, because God has revealed his steadfast love to Joseph, Joseph is the one who's free, spiritually free. Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar are perhaps one of the most important people in Egypt. Despite their wealth and position, when you examine their lives here, you realize even though externally they may be free, spiritually they're in bondage. I had a eureka moment last night when I was praying for this, and I think that's true. Externally, these people may be free, but spiritually, they're in bondage. Joseph, externally, he may be in jail, but internally, he's free. Are you free? Are you enslaved? That's what we're going to study today. Let's go to Mrs. Potiphar. Verse, let's talk about Mrs. Potiphar. Remember Mrs. Potiphar? Mrs. Potiphar was married to Mr. Potiphar, and Mr. Potiphar was a chief of the king's guard, which means he was the chief, he was a chief cop. He was the chief cop of the king's army, which means he was a person, he was a high dignitary. He was one of the most powerful men in Egypt, and, at, and with his relationship, Mrs. Potiphar was also in the in crowd among the, among the socialites. Okay? I would imagine because Mrs. Potiphar is a socialite, is a wife of a very high-ranking person, externally, Mrs. Potiphar was really well put together. You know what I mean? So as I was like, like writing this, I remember my childhood, right? My dad was a diplomat, and people would have, people would come over to our house, and people, like, people from the embassy and the government would come to our house often for parties or Bible studies, right? Because my mom was the wife of the minister, and because people wanted to, you know, impress my mom, they would come to my house for you know, Thursday afternoon Bible studies. And we had a lot of function in my house, right? And you could see how well put together these women were. You know what I mean? They, they, they had a certain haircut, hairstyle, that was not too flashy, not too, not too trendy, but just right. And the way they dressed was not too colorful, not too plain, but just the right fit, just the right color. Their makeup was just so. They were very sophisticated ladies. And I would imagine Mrs. Potiphar was like that. A very sophisticated, well-put-together lady. Externally, she was the envy of the crowd. But in her home, Mrs. Potiphar, when the makeup was off, when the hair was undone at home, Mrs. Potiphar was straight out led by her desires. Sorry, he'll cough. Mrs. Potiphar was straight out led by her desires. What she was all about, despite her externality, external public, publicness in her home, she was led by her desires. How do you know? How did she treat Joseph? She looked at the handsome, young, charismatic Joseph, and she plain out said, lie with me, sleep with me. She had no consideration of her husband. She had no consideration of Joseph. All she knew, for whatever reason, human sex, female sexuality is a mystery to me, but for whatever reason, this woman wanted to have sexual relationship with Joseph. 
She constantly asked him over and over and over again. She had no regard for her husband's humanity. She had no regard for Joseph's humanity. All she wanted was her, all she knew was her desires. She was led by her desires. That's what sin looks like. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. A person who is spiritually dead. A spiritually dead person is a person who's totally blind to the things of God. God created the heavens and the earth. God controls the pillars of the universe. God designed, God gave laws, whether they're physical laws or spiritual laws. The universe is governed by his laws. And he upholds everything through his hands. Spiritually blind person does not recognize this, Paul says. They don't, they're not living in a personal awareness of it. They may think intellectually, yeah, God exists, but a spiritually blind person, even though they may declare that God exists with their mouths, they don't personally recognize that God exists. Don't conflate, don't confuse the two. Even there's a difference, even if you may declare with your lips God is real the way you truly know that God is real is whether it's, it, it will reflect on how you live your life there are people who say God is real and yet who are not personally who don't, who are not, who don't personally recognize that God is real and Paul is saying if you don't personally recognize that God is real you're spiritually blind and if you're spiritually blind, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2 verse 1 to 3, you are led by the desires and the thoughts of your flesh. God is, invisible. God is personally invisible to you. All you are left is you are led by the desires of your flesh and the thoughts of your flesh. The desires of the flesh is you just, you're led by, to satisfy the cravings. You know, like vampires who are, you know, who just satisfy, I don't know why I said vampires, but vampires, they just crave blood all the time. They're led by the cravings of their flesh. Similarly, a spiritually blind person. Spiritually blind person are led by the thoughts of the flesh. You constantly want to entertain yourself. You are led by your desires. This is what Mr. Po Mrs. Potiphar, how she's living. And you know what happens if you're, if you're only led by your desires? The first thing that happens is you lose people in your life. That you start to not see, you start to be blind to the humanity of the people around you. When you're led by your desires, the humanity of the people around you, the humanity of the people that you're lusting after, the humanity of the person that you want to use, you lose all that humanity if you're only focused on your desires. Back to vampires. I don't know why I'm in such a vampire game. Vampires, they don't care about the humanity of their victims. They just care about the blood. Similarly, a person who is led by their desires do not care about the humanity of the other person. They just need to use the other person to satisfy the cravings and, uh, cravings and, the, and, the, and the thoughts of their flesh. Do you understand? That is why lust is such a bad thing. The person that you're lusting after, you don't care about their humanity. The other person is, ceases to be a human being to you. They're simply objects of your desires. I had a really good small group. Yay. What do we call ourselves? What do we call ourselves, Alan? Okay, first fruit small groups. We had a really good first group small groups the other day on Friday. And we were analyzing 
what a person who doesn't know the gospel looked like. If he, a person who doesn't know God in a, in a marital relationship, if you are not aware that God has created your spouse, and if you are not aware that your spouse is a human being, if you're ignorant of God and how God has created your spouse to, be, to reflect his glory, all you will see is your spouse through the lens of your expectation. And when you forget about God and how God has created her, and if, only, if you only see your spouse through the lens of your expectation and your thoughts, your spouse ceases to be a human being to you. That is why you have no problem speaking the most violent, hateful, vile thing to your spouse in the heat of battle. Because in the heat of battle, your spouse is no longer a human being. He or she is just an idea in your head. Oh man, I'm going really hard. Why, are, why is there marital strife? Why is there no respect between husband and wife? Because at that moment, we're spiritually blind. We don't look at our spouse through the lens of the Almighty God. We look at them through the lens of our fallen mind. That's how it works, you know. That's what, that's what sin looks like. Being spiritually blind, not being personally aware of God. You're led by your desires and thoughts. And the first casualty of you being led by your thoughts and desires is the humanity of the other. Is this too theoretical? That's exactly what Mrs. Potiphar was doing here. No regard for her husband, no regard for Joseph, just her flesh. How do you know you're a prisoner to your sins? It's more than smoking or drinking or playing video games all night. Are you led by the desires of your, th- desires of your flesh? Are you led by the desire- fleshly thoughts? How do you know you are? How do you treat the people around you? How do you treat the people that you're lusting after? Mrs. Potiphar is imprisoned to her desires. Joseph, by the grace of God, resisted. Good job, Joe. I love guys named Joe. Good job, Joe. Joe said no. Joe left. Mrs. Potiphar became livid, became incredibly angry. Because Mrs. Potiphar felt humiliated. No one rejects Mrs. Potiphar. How dare a Hebrew, how dare a slave reject her? That's why when Mr. Potiphar came home, what did she tell Mr. Potiphar? Did she, still, did she tell Mr. Potiphar, Joseph tried to rape me? No. What did she say? He says, in verse 18, he says, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 17, he says, the he, she says, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. Once again, what is she doing? She says, look, first of all, the Hebrew servant whom who you, Potiphar, brought us to this house. So whose fault is it? It's the husband's fault, right? Came here to laugh at me. He humiliated me. I'm the victim here, Potiphar. I'm a victim of your indiscretion. You weren't discreet when you bought the slave home. It's your fault. And secondly, it's Joseph's fault for humiliating me. Is it a lie 
Of course it's a lie. But do you think she thinks it's a lie? Do you think she said it to cover her sins? I don't think so. Why? Because no one, she didn't get caught. There's nothing to cover up. When she accuses Joseph of humiliating her, I think she really thinks that she's the victim. She really thinks that she's the wrong party here. She really thinks good old Joe humiliated her. What is the evidence of sin? You're not aware of your own sins. The number one way that you know that you are a prisoner of your sins is that you're not aware of your sins. You're really good. We're really good at blaming the others for our misery, right? We're really good at blaming society, blaming our parents, blaming the pastors, blaming our husbands. We're really good at blaming others for our misery, but we never are aware of the, of the evil that we commit on the inside. The entire psych- psychological U.S. psychology practice is based on the assumption that you were a naturally good person, but it is your parents who messed you up. You are a neutral good person, but it is your husband who messed you up. It is your parents who messed you up. It is society who messed you up. It is white people who messed you up. It is the patriarchy that messed you up. It is, you know, capitalism that messed you up. You are an innocent victim here, y'all. You are not a sinner. You're a victim. And we buy into this. I'm a victim. Maybe I'll get fired for this. Oh, well. The way you know that you're bondage to sin is that you're not aware that you're a sinner. How do you know? Adam, when he, when he sinned, when he, was discovered, when, when he discovered sin, when God asked him, what have you done? What did Adam say? He said what? The woman you put with me, she made me do this. The first evidence of sin is denial. You notice that we're really good at blaming other people. But we're painfully blind to our transgression. How much are you aware of your sin? You see, you need to be aware of your sins in order for you to understand the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And and when you know the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you also experience the freedom that he gives. Unless you know that you need to be rescued, How will the gospel be relevant to you? In your life, are you more aware of your victimhood? Or are you more aware of the fact that you're a transgressor? But Christ forgave you and died for you and cleansed you of your sins to make you his. Is what Christ has done for you in forgiveness, is that a greater reality to you? Or is your victimhood a greater reality to you? If you know that you're saved, if that is the basis of your experience with God, you will understand and experience his love. You truly will. But if only you're focused on is how you are being transgressed, if only you're focusing on is your victimhood, you will never really understand the love of Jesus Christ. Look, one time, like 
a friend of mine presented, like, gave me a letter that his father wrote about his girlfriend, how his girlfriend was unacceptable, basically. So I was reading that letter, and his father was a really smart guy. It was the most persuasive letter I have ever read. I go, holy moly, that's, this is really good writing. I'm a fan of big writing, by the, good writing, by the way. As I was reading that really logically well thought out letter of how the, the girlfriend was not acceptable, you know what I realized? I go, God can write a similar letter about me and he'll be 100% right. But despite his most accurate observation about me, somehow he sent Christ for me to die for me and to forgive me and to love me. And that is the basis of your, my faith. And that has to be the basis of yours. Mrs. Potiphar does, does, is not living in that awareness. Because all she is is a victim. Let's talk about Mr. Potiphar. Mr. Potiphar, he listens to his wife. And when he listens to his wife, he gets really angry at Joseph. Understandably so, yeah? If your wife, husbands, told you that your servant came into your wife and laughed at her and wanted to sleep with her, are you going to tell your wife, hey, get over it, woman? No. Hopefully, you'll, you'll say no. Like, you won't say get over it. You'll be angered, too. It's understandable why he initially got angry. But the problem with Mr. Potiphar was that he forgot the truth. While it's natural for him to be initially be angry, Mr. Potiphar must have also realized he needed to remember the truth about Joseph. What was the truth about Joseph? Joseph, by this time, he was in Potiphar's service for 13 years. And for 13 years, 13 years, Joseph was a faithful, good, capable servant. Verse 3 says, Potiphar knew God was with his household because of what Joseph was doing for his house. Which I think surmised miraculous things were happening in Potiphar's household because of Joseph. Joseph, in all the 13 years, never betrayed his master. Joseph was really good to his master. Joseph was the most faithful servant he could ever ask for. But in the moment when his wife told him the truth about Joseph, he just stopped, he just, just went out the door. It went out of his mind. And all that he knew was how he felt at that moment. Mr. Potiphar is guilty of being led by emotions that are not founded in truth. His decision was based, made based on emotions that are not grounded in truth. Look, we're, we're made in the image of God, and that's why we're emotional people. We are. Give me a good Korean drama, and I'll cry every time. Right? 25, 21, oh, man, when they love each other, it's so, so touching. Right? Man, when they say goodbye, broke my heart in a million pieces. You know what I'm saying? Emotions are a good thing. They're one of the main things in which we gauge the world and the universe. But emotions, you need to understand, 
has to be grounded in truth in order to, in order to, in order to function properly. Our emotions have to be based on what is true in order for us to gauge reality properly. But if you're spiritually blind, if you're not personally aware of God, if you're not aware that there is a higher reality outside of yourself governing you, then your emotions are not really based on truth. Your emotions are based on lies. People make decisions. It is clear. People make decisions emotionally. It's clear. People do not make decisions rationally. That's not what they do. They make their decisions emotionally. But the problem of making such decisions is that their decisions are not based on truth because they don't know God. The decisions are made emotionally that are based on fabrication and half-truths. That's why there's so much tension and division in the world and in our homes. Emotions just flying all over the place. People accusing each other with baseless emotions. Give me an example. Sometimes when I counsel people, especially married people, you know what it feels like? It feels like I'm, I parachuted off of, the, of, a, of a plane and I, got, I, I land in a war zone. So we, we, it feels that way sometimes where the husband is saying something, and the wife is saying something, and the parents are saying something, it's like, I go, what's going on here? Because everyone is exploding, there's chaos, it's all around me, and I go, what's going on? It's a chaotic mess. And why is it a chaotic mess? Because people are upset. Why are they upset? Because their interpretation of certain events, they think they have the right interpretation. And based upon their belief of the right interpretation, they feel a certain way. Where their spouse thinks the other way, and they feel that what their interpretation is right. And therefore, they're just constantly, emotionally yelling at each other. And I go, what's going on? Your fights, my dear friends, at your home is based on baseless, factualist emotion. Or they're based on only your thinking, your interpretation of events. We feel what we think is true. That's clear. Our emotions are based on what we think is true. And because what you think you think is true, even though it's not, that's why your emotions are haywire. The tragedy of living in the bondage of sin is that you are living your life based on factualist, baseless emotions. And as a result, you are killing and hurting so many people around you. That's why if you look at, I think, Galatians, the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of a person who doesn't know God, is always hatred, division, dissension, judgments. Emotion, baseless, people who are led by baseless emotions, they constantly fight and divide because they don't know the truth. Yesterday, I had a three-hour conversation with a friend of mine. My gosh, it was like a Joe Rogan podcast. So he wanted to talk to me, so I went, bought me coffee. I felt so touched by someone buying something for me. My love language is gifts, evidently. I was so moved by a $5 coffee, right? Anyway, I was drinking coffee, three-hour conversation. And in the beginning, when I first saw him, he was all confused, like marital problems. Marital problems. Oh. And then you sit down, and you ask questions. And you crack a joke. And you sit down, and you listen to him, try to understand him all while trying to steering him to the truth. I'm very good that way. And after three hours, he felt better. I didn't give him any advice. I just listened to him and steered the conversation to the truth. 
That made him feel better. Before, he was just feeling emotions or of hatred and being upset, being hopeless, but talking about it and framing it in the light of truth, it made him feel much better. The people of God are led by the truth. When the truth is in your life, he, God corrects your bad emotions, and he transitioned it to a proper emotion. That's what he does. That's what he experienced yesterday. If you forget about God, your emotions are just crazy. But when you shine God's truth into that emotion, the crazy emotion becomes orderly, organized again. That's why I see. If you don't know God, the tragedy of living in sin is that you are led by disorderly emotions, which is absolutely a living hell. Isn't it true? Being led by disorderly, truthless emotions, isn't that hell? That's hell. But when God shines his light, your crazy, hurtful emotions find their proper place. You understand? Feel pretty clear? Husbands, you are not called to do what Mr. Potiphar did. Mr. Potiphar just did whatever his wife told him to do. Okay, I gotta be very careful, okay? Wives, I love you, can't live without you. You're my favorite, right? But husbands, God in Ephesians chapter 5 clearly told you to clearly assigned you as a leader of your home. Especially, God has assigned you, called you to lead your wife. If you are a husband, there is no exception. You are called to lead your wife. Is this a sermon that gets get me fired? Maybe. Hi, HR. But you're called to lead your wife in the truth. You're not called to lead your wife saying, woman, go get me a sandwich. That's not leading in the truth. That's just being a chauvinist pig. He has called you to lead your wife in the truth. And he doesn't mean preaching, saying my way is the truth and live, whatever, live according to what I say. That's not what Jesus means. He means leading truth the way that Jesus leads the church in truth. Jesus walks with his people in the truth. As he walks with his people, he persuades his people with the truth. Husbands, listen to me carefully. God's calling and he's going to ask you on the day of judgment, have you led your wife in the truth? He is not calling you to do whatever your wife asks you to do. Maybe that's not a bad idea. But more importantly than you doing whatever you want your wife asks you to, and do or don't, whatever it is, right? The primary calling is to lead her in the truth. How do you lead her in the truth? You listen to her. Even though that means listening to her tell the same stories over and over and over and over and over again in order for them to process that reality. You sit there and you listen to it over and over and over and over again. And you never say, what do you want me to do about it? That's, you don't do that. You never say, what do you want me to do about it? You don't do that. You listen to her over and over and over again. You hold her. You go on date nights with her. You listen to her and slowly but surely lead her into the truth. You don't preach. The, you don't throw the Bible at her. But simply, gently, humbly walking next to her, being there for her. And leader in the truth. Look, remember Phil, Phil Kim? I love that guy. In, in Olivia's, not Olivia, in Heather's wedding, I had, a, I had a conversation with him. And he says, you know, there's two Pastor J's. 
There's a Sunday Pastor Jay, and there's a Monday, Saturday Pastor Jay. And the Sunday Pastor Jay is really intense, right? And Sunday Pastor Jays are needed for Sundays. But what makes Pastor Jay so good? But what, but what is good about you is that Monday, Saturday Pastor Jay is very humble. He's very gentle and sweet. He called me sweet. I didn't know. So evidently, I'm sweet, right? He walks like so. Like he says, like you. I, I just have a way of like listening to you and like kind of hearing you out. I go, man, I'm a great pastor. So, so you shouldn't to your wife. You shouldn't Sunday Pastor Jay to her. You should be like a Monday, Saturday Pastor Jay to her. Like a, like walk with her. And lead her gently and lovingly into the truth. I need to Monday, Saturday, Pastor Jay to my wife too. But you're called to lead her into truth. Your job is more than providing for her. But to completely love her and lead her into truth. Not saying, this is what the Bible said, woman, do it. Not that way. But simply loving and walking and leading her into truth. We can all agree with that, right? That's the calling. Mr. Potiphar, led by emotion, truthless, faithless emotion. Mrs. Potiphar, led by desires and the sense of victimhood. This is an example of a people who are in sin. Where's Joseph? Joseph is in jail. Mr. Potiphar got mad. He put Joseph in jail. But it it says in verse verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed his steadfast love to him. The thing about Joseph is he had a very fluctuating, topsy-turvy life. He was favored by his father, then he was sold to slavery. He was favored by, by whatchamacallit, Potiphar, then he was put in jail. It's like a very dramatic life, it's like a Korean drama kind of a life. You know what I mean? His circumstances changed. But God's faithful, steadfast, unchanging love never changed in Joseph's life. Whether he was in Potiphar's house, whether he was his father's house, whether he's in jail, God still loved Joseph, and God made Joseph aware of his steadfast love to Joseph. Guys and girls, your circumstances may change in life. Sometimes you're on top, sometimes you're on way bottom. Sometimes you're exactly where you think you ought to be. Sometimes you're nowhere near what you think you ought to be. It will fluctuate. Trust me, it will. You will gain some and you will certainly lose some. But regardless of the fluctuations in your life, the Bible is clear. God's love for his people transcends circumstances. You're an adult, so I'll tell you an adult example. There's a medical missionary. She gave her life to Christ. She went to med school, gave her life to Christ, and say, my medical degree is yours. And she just didn't mean by short-term missions. You know, most people say, oh, I want to be a doctor. Not you, Jun, right? But, you know, like some of some guys, oh, if I go to medical school, I'll be a missionary for you. But they mean short-term missionaries, right? They do only a couple of times a week, a couple of times a year. No, she devoted her entire life to the Lord. And with her medical degree, <clears throat> June, she went to the Congo. There's a civil war breaking out. And in that civil war breaking out in the country, she got imprisoned by the guerrillas, soldiers. And she was physically, brutally raped. She said, I want to do things for you, God. And she went to the place whom, where she think God is sending her. But then she was brutally experienced brutality there. In her biography, 
He says, even after that event, God still reveals himself to her. She does not know why she needed to go through that ordeal. But she says, God was still with me there. This is opposite from the modern notion of God's love. We think God's love is in only in the positive circumstances. No, 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 no. The reality is God's love is everywhere, especially in the bad circumstances. And that's what Joseph is showing. I got two minutes. Let's talk about Paul. Joseph is in jail, but in the jail dungeon, God lifts Joseph up in jail, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. I think what Paul is saying here is this. He says, I'm the least of, least of the apostles because I'm, one of the, I'm the worst person out there. I'm the most unlikely person because I persecuted the church. I'm the one with my hands persecuted the church. Look, the other day, my daughter looked at me and she said, on my, on my drive home, she said, Dad, it seems like you really love your church people. I go, yeah, I do, baby. Right? Oh, you're so lucky. I love you. You're my people. The church is the people of God. Paul persecuted the people of God. Through his hands, people were killed. Paul was a chief of sinners. Paul was able to persecute Christians because he was led by, not by God, but by religious ideology. He was convinced of the Jewish religious ideology. And if you're led by ideology, you have no problem killing other people for the sake of your ideology. Just ask the communists and the Nazis of the 20th, 20th century. You can kill millions of people if you're convinced of your ideology. And Paul says, my ideology, my Jewish ideology, I thought was correct. Therefore, I had no problem persecuting the church. Paul was in a dark place of unbelief. Paul was in a dark place of unbelief, just like Mr. Potiphar, just like Mrs. Potiphar. He was in a place of unbelief. But Paul says, by the grace of God, I am who I am. God rescued Paul from that religious ideology. And God revealed Jesus Christ to Paul. Paul says, I am who I am. I am an apostle chosen by God simply because of God's grace, simply because God revealed Jesus Christ to me. God rescued me from the man that I am, man that I was. Just as Joseph was lifted up from jail, God lifted, lifted Paul up from the, from, from the sinful mentality that he possessed. And he says, the rescue that God showed me was not without effect. Means when God rescued me, you know God rescued him because it there was an effect on his life. It transformed his life. How do you know whether God truly rescued you? Is there an effect in your life? Christianity is not a religious ideology. It's not. It's the very power of God that transforms the reality of a person. You need to understand this. What you claim to believe in is a force, a power that transforms, that affects the lives of a person that, that God, chose to, God, God shows his grace to. Paul says, I've been saved, and the way you know that I've been saved is because God's power has effect on me. Is your faith having an effect on you? 
Is it having an effect on you? Is it having an effect on what you're being led by? Is it affected by what you, how you see life? Is it being affected by what you want to do with your life? Is it affected by what you, how you want to spend your time? Look, the other day, man, I had a lunch with a brother at Gassadon, Gassadon, something, right? And my brother, we were eating fish gassadon, and he was eating tokasu, right? And, you know, I said to him, you know, man, all I want at the end of my life is just to say, just to hear from God that I lived my life well. I just want to hear well done. And the guy said, me too, Pastor Jay. And I almost cried. Because I knew what I wanted out of my life was not some fantasy. But there's another brother who shared that sentiment. How we see our lives is different. Has there been an effect in what you want to do, from, uh, in how you want to live your life, and what you want to do with your life? Has there been an effect? Paul says. But Paul also says the grace of God energizes him. Paul says the great effect in his life is, is he works really super hard for God. And he's able to work super hard for God because of the grace of God that is within him. And that's true. In order for you to live for God, the presence of God is constantly at work in you. Transitioning you, motivating you, guiding you, rebuking you, encouraging you. Guys, for the Christian, like, God constantly feeds our souls. God constantly feeds our souls so we can, so we can live for him. And that's the evidence that Paul knows that, that he knows that he's saved because the grace of God is constantly at work in him. Guys, is the grace of God constantly at work in you? I've overstayed my welcome. Similar, God rescues you from your sins. God rescues you from the person who was led by your desires. God rescues, rescues you from a person who is led by baseless emotions. And he, when he rescues you, when he reveals Jesus Christ to you, he changes you. And not only that, he constantly motivates you to live your life for him. That's the experience of the Christian. I hope and pray that's the experience of your life. Let us pray.